0: This episode of the Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by voting. Do you like using your voice and participating in democracy? Try voting on November 3rd, or drop off your mail-in ballot today!
1: Welcome to episode 23 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's Hottest Podcast, I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about forests, a place so fun it led to this children's song. Skipping in the forest, skipping in
0: the forest, we're not afraid, we're not afraid. One step, two steps, three steps forward. One step, two steps, three steps back. Stop. Listen. that? It's a woodpecker! We're not afraid!
1: Really? You should at least be a little afraid. If that thing has a beak sharp enough to whittle down a tree, imagine how easily it could poke your eye out if you made it mad? I mean, I get that all cartoon animals, except for Swiper and Scrappy-Doo, are portrayed as loving and innocent, but let's not hide the truth here. Woodpeckers are terrifying. But believe it or not, trees face much larger threats than cartoon woodpeckers. In fact, just this Wednesday, the largest forest in the United States was dealt a catastrophic blow.
0: The Tongass National Forest in Alaska has been called America's Amazon. It's one of the world's largest temperate rainforests absorbing carbon dioxide emitted by the United States, which is why the plan to roll back protections is worrying environmentalists and climate scientists. All of that old growth forest, those 400, 500 year old trees have been absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for hundreds of years. And so um, environmentalists say that the impact of cutting down those particular trees could, could release um, the equivalent of putting as many as 10 million new cars on the road, the, the CO2 pollution equivalent.
1: The U.S. government just rolled back the roadless rule for the Tongass National Forest in Alaska, which banned road conservation and timber harvest there, opening up 9.3 million acres of forest there to logging and development. Proponents of the rollback argue that developing the land would bring needed economic activity to the region during the coronavirus recession, while opponents insist that the land is the country's largest carbon sink, home to irreplaceable biodiversity, considered sacred by indigenous communities in the region, and is actually not economically viable to develop due to it being home to large fishing and tourism industries, and the fact that lumber companies would only profit from logging in the Tongass due to a government subsidy placing the burden on taxpayers. But we won't be talking about just the Tongass today because this recent headline is one of a legion of threats to old-growth forests around the world, which, like the Tongass, are massive carbon sinks, host important biodiversity, and provide a multitude of ecosystem services and economic benefits. And according to a Science Magazine study, since 1900, the world has lost over one-third of its old-growth forests. So today, we'll discuss why old-growth forests are important, what threats they face, and what we might be able to do about it. But first, what constitutes an old-growth forest?
0: Old-growth is a forest with large canopy
1: trees that are at least 150 years old. They are large in diameter, typically 30 inches or more. And for forests, age actually matters a lot, almost as much as it did for Jessica on Love is Blind trying to decide her feelings for Mark. Jessica, you're 34, he's 24. 34 divided by 2 plus 7 is 24. You're good. He doesn't care. His parents don't care. Your friends don't care. You are literally the only person who cares, and you need to quit making excuses, stop stringing this guy along, and actually let yourself find happiness. The size and age of these ancient trees provide a slew of benefits that younger trees can't, and let's start with biodiversity. Old-growth forests create a lot of really unique habitats, such as large trees with dead tops, snags and logs on the forest floor, and trees with fungal heart rot, where a disease creates cavities in the tree trunk that some species use for nesting. Certain types of woodpeckers, owls, mosses, lichens, and weasels, among other species, require these sorts of habitats. Northern Spotted Owls, for example, must have over a thousand acres of old-growth forest land available to them to perform their breeding rituals, because apparently owls are really not into studio apartments. And while some owls do overlap land, it doesn't happen to a large extent because owls are really territorial. In fact, they're more territorial than Season 3 Ross every time Rachel so much as glanced at another guy and due in large part to the dwindling of old growth forests, populations of these species are declining, with many becoming threatened or endangered. Biodiversity also faces the threat of climate change, and old growth forests provide some really important protections.
2: Insects, mammals, and bird species have more options to find where they're happiest or where they have the best chance of success. This is the part that we need to understand if we want to understand how climate change is going to impact these forests, and in particular these trees, which are creating all the good structure below in the microclimates that the birds prefer and are using as a refuge from hot temperatures,
1: it's true. Due to the structure of these trees and the canopy cover which provides shade, old growth forests can reduce spring and summer temperatures by as much as 2.5 degrees Celsius or 4.5 degrees Fahrenheit as compared to their younger counterparts. That's huge! If it's 72 degrees, I'd go outside for a walk in some fresh air. But if it's 76.5 degrees, I'd blast my fan, complain all day about how gross the weather is, and start a weekly podcast investigating every single possible reason why it could be that uncomfortably hot out. For many species, that little bit of cooling makes all the difference in the world. And since younger forests don't have the same kind of branches and canopy cover, old growth forests are really the only place to turn. In addition to that cooling effect within the forest, old growth forests actually store away carbon. And since carbon dioxide is the primary contributor to climate change, that means old growth forests are able to slow climate change itself. This forest,
2: as measured by this carbon sequestration and and the development of their soils and the development of a lot of other really important parts of the forest, is actually a continuous process which goes well beyond that first generation of trees two-thirds of the carbon that's stored in our forest is stored below ground. So it's not in those big, massive trunks and branches of trees. It's actually in the soils and roots and dead trees uh, and dead wood, which is a really important part of this
1: system. Wow. Who knew that dead wood was our only hope for the future? Dead wood, what do you have to say about that?
3: the future.
1: You cannot f*** the future, sir. The future fits you. Thanks for your restraint, Commissioner. So, young trees actually uptake carbon faster than old trees. But what happens is many of the young trees don't survive due to forest fires or other stresses, and the carbon they uptake gets re-released into the atmosphere. But old-growth forests are less susceptible to forest fires. The trees that are there have absorbed immense quantities of carbon, and there's been enough time for tons of carbon to make its way underground. In other words, young trees are essentially Sonic on Super Smash Brothers. Just because they're the fastest doesn't mean they're the best. The best, of course, is Wario. I mean, not only can he chew someone and spit them out, but he can spontaneously create a motorcycle out of thin air and plow into someone and drive them off a cliff. Why aren't more people playing him? So what threats do old-growth forests face? Well, a lot, but let's dive in with Human Land Clearing. Humans chop down forests for several reasons, from mining, to drilling, to development and urbanization, to agriculture, which we shared some examples of in our Beef and Vanilla episodes. But one of the primary human threats to old growth forests, more specifically, is logging. As Ancient Forest Alliance co-founder T.J. Watt
0: explains. Groves like the one we're in today, the Eden Grove near Port Renfrew, have become so extremely rare and are also the areas that are most targeted by the logging industry. Oftentimes we arrive only to find that the area has already been surveyed for logging or worse, the trees have been cut down and it's simply a sea of giant stumps. These are ecosystems that evolve over thousands of years. These trees can be also just as old, yet in a matter of days or weeks, a forest like the one we're standing in today can be cut down, never to be seen again in the same way. Now,
1: there's some debate as to whether or not it's more profitable to cut down an old growth forest because of the quality of the logs, or to cut down a young forest due to the relative ease of felling and transporting the smaller trees. But it's worth noting that when cutting down an old tree, a timber company can plant six, seven, eight new trees in its place due to its size. From their perspective, cutting down old growth forests is quite lucrative. However, that's not to say the practice is economically beneficial. A 2019 report from the Center for Sustainable Economy found that government subsidies for logging programs on federal forests lost American taxpayers $1.3 to $1.5 billion per year. When factoring in costs of suppressing fires due to the fact that sparser forests allow in more sun and wind, which increases fire susceptibility, that number jumps to $1.8 billion. That's almost as much money as the Kardashians spent on Kim's 40th birthday getaway last week. And due to these subsidies, timber companies can continue these environmentally harmful practices without actually creating a viable business model and competing in a free market. The government really just looked the future in the eye and said,
3: F*** the future!
1: In addition to logging and other human land clearing, old-growth forests are actually being harmed by climate change, the exact thing they're working to fend off. Natural disturbances that have been exacerbated by climate change, such as wildfires, droughts, wind, and pathogen outbreaks, can decimate a forest. Higher temperatures make photosynthesis harder and create lower growth rates, higher mortality rates, and less regeneration. And invasive insects, which we shared an example of in our Gypsy Moths episode, often migrate to new areas in a changing climate. And the carbon storage lost to insects each year is the same amount of carbon emitted by 5 million vehicles, according to a recent study. Although I really wish the study would specify which vehicles it's referring to. Are we talking about 5 million airplanes or 5 million little tykes cozy coops? Obviously, a lot of these threats apply to any forest. But the big concern is that, unlike young forests, old-growth forests can't be grown back. Since old-growth forests are hundreds of years old, when we cut them down, they're gone. So even if a new forest grows back or is planted and takes its place, it can't provide the same benefits as the old-growth forests did.
3: When these forests are logged, the second-growth forests that replace them are profoundly different in their structure and composition. Uh, A second growth forest has a much larger number of much smaller trees in it, uh, all of them alive, and lacking a lot of the complex structure that species depend upon to live in those forests.
1: That was forest ecologist Andy McKinnon, and he's right. And old growth forests are irreplaceable in ways beyond just the environment. They're home to fishing and tourism industries that apply economic benefits to the region. They're home to indigenous populations all over the world who not only need the land for subsistence, but regard it for its cultural significance. And they're also just really beautiful pieces of land, like national parks or putt-putt golf courses. Of course, given that old-growth forests have so many stakeholders and are under siege by climate change, which is already here, protecting them isn't easy. But given the benefits to the ecosystem, climate, economy, and countless other areas we didn't even get to cover, preserving old-growth forests is absolutely worth a shot. So how do we do that? One way, perhaps one of the more direct ways, would be to restrict logging in old-growth forests, either through market incentives, outright bans, or some combination. That does come with trade-offs, since a lot of timber companies really like the old logs. But one, their operations are largely propped up by government subsidies, and two, since old-growth forests have declined so much, there's not a lot left for them to log anyway. Companies would either have to stop now, or stop a short way down the line after cutting down everything that's left and cutting down young forests and second-growth forests does cause damage too, but one could easily argue that due to old-growth forests, larger carbon stores, unique habitats, and irreplaceability, that would be an improvement. Some regions and countries around the world do protect their old-growth forests, and others have signaled openness to consider policies to preserve them. But according to Dr. McKinnon, even if a government is willing to take action, time is of the essence.
3: The government of British Columbia has indicated that they would be interested in discussing the concept of revising the Vancouver Island land use plan. But each year we log nine or ten thousand hectares of old growth forests on Vancouver Island. If we carry on at this rate and we don't start looking seriously at the current land use plan, For another five years or more, there's not going to be an awful lot to make decisions about. Uh, We have to avoid a situation where we talk and log.
1: In British Columbia's defense, I don't think they want a situation where you talk and log either. I mean, talk and log is the worst kind of date right behind Netflix and chill, Hulu and hang, YouTube and 2boob, and Reddit and spread it. Often, governments actually have quite a bit of control here. In the United States, for example, most old-growth forests is in the West, and a 2014 Department of Agriculture report found 70% of forest in the West is publicly owned, and about 10% of forest in the U.S. is classified as reserved, predominantly in the West. Of course, that was 2014, and the repeal of the roadless rule in the Tongass could actually make a visible dent in that. Preserving old-growth forests also requires a lot of international cooperation. The largest forest in the world, much of which is old growth, is the Amazon, and as we discussed in the beef episode, the Amazon is being chopped down at breakneck speeds, in large part due to the desire for land for cattle ranching and soybean farming. For countries like Brazil working to develop and grow their economies, it makes sense that they would want to use that land, which makes international cooperation key. Without some agreement. Countries housing the Amazon have little incentive to preserve the forest, and every other country gets hit with far worse climate impacts without the world's largest carbon sink. The United Nations is working to push in this direction through a mechanism called reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, or REDD+. Red Plus aims to create financial value for carbon stored in forests by offering incentives and financial payments for developing countries to preserve and sustainably manage their forests. To further the goals of Red Plus, the UN created the Collaborative Program on Red Plus in Developing Countries, which supports the design and implementation of Red Plus programs, creates spaces for countries and stakeholders to communicate with each other, and produces incredible videos like this.
3: See that forests are more than trees. See they are home to countless living beings. Living beings like you and me, whose lives are better with forests. Forests that bring us rain, rivers, water. Water that brings us food in the forest and beyond.
1: Wow. I may not have realized my life is better with Forrest, but my life is certainly better after hearing that dude's voice. I don't think there's a better voiceover in the history of environmental filmmaking. And yeah, I'm talking to you, Sir David Attenborough. You went on 60 Minutes last month, talked in a normal voice, and now you're getting absolutely clobbered. Red Plus and the UN Red Program have received some critiques. Some suggest financial incentives are risky with forest preservation because the world only benefits so long as the forest is kept intact. If, say, a country were compensated for 10 years and then decided to cut down their forest, the stored carbon would be released and other countries would kind of get slighted. The mechanism has also been criticized for failing to promote social responsibility since there have been cases of countries taking on REDD-plus projects without the consent of the indigenous communities living in the forests. And there are absolutely ways to involve them in the process, one of which being land titling.
0: Land titling is an important step for indigenous communities to strengthen their efforts to protect the forest they live in. The Peruvian government, with support from the UN RED program, trained more than 325 indigenous technicians and leaders on climate change and the role of forests. Some trained technicians and indigenous leaders now facilitate legal processes for land titling, but above all, ensure communication and trust.
1: Land titling would allow Indigenous communities to claim private ownership of the land they've occupied and with programs like this one, the communities could gain those rights and learn how to conserve and manage the land in a sustainable manner. All of these solutions are contingent on our ability to manage old-growth forests, and that also hasn't been spotless. With wildfires, for example, the amount of brush, debris, and other flammable matter on the forest floors, referred to as the fuel load, has been increasing over the last century due to improper forest management practices. And while there's a lot of research being done on forest management, past failures plus climate change have made the process a lot harder. It's sort of like high school math class. Whenever you learn how to do it, you're forced to move a level up and feel clueless and stupid again. As challenging as it is, it's also really important given that wildfires don't just harm the forest, they also harm anyone living in the forest vicinity, whether it be air quality, health impacts, or even forcing them to evacuate or forever flee their homes. As important of an issue as deforestation in general is, it's essential to take note of the fact that not only are we losing forests, but forests are trending younger. Old-growth forests are being threatened, and when they're replaced, they lose so much of their value, value that we barely scratch the surface of today. And as challenging as forest management and preservation is, a focus on the well-being of old-growth forests would help the economy, protect the homes of the animals, birds, plants, and people who live there, and prevent the world from letting climate change get too out of control and taking... One step, two steps, three steps
0: back! Do you like when your town, state, or country does things you want them to do? If so, voting's for you. With voting, you get to pick the people you like best and help them get elected, so they can actually do the things you'd like to see happen. Cool.
3: Voting. The one-time peer pressure is really, really awesome.
0: Welcome
2: back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Michael Dietz, a professor of earth and environment at Boston University. Dr. Dietz, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: So you co-authored a paper for Science Magazine just this year on shifts in forest dynamics, how forests are becoming increasingly younger. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the study, how it was conducted, and what the findings were?
0: Yeah, so this review study came out of a large workshop uh, the Department of Energy organized to kind of look at the role of disturbance and demographic processes in climate change responses. And from that broad context, I would say there are kind of two themes. One is, I think, kind of epitomized by the first couple of figures that are looking at how forest area is changing from 1900 out to 2100, so the last century and the current century. And not just looking at this in terms of overall area, but also thinking about what is the age structure and kind of complexity of those forests knowing that you know, young forests do not store as much carbon as old forests and they, they support very different species assemblages in terms of biodiversity depending on the, the age of the forest. And so kind of as a rough threshold, we, you know, we used about 140 years as a cutoff between young and mature forests versus older growth forests and, and kind of looked at how, we're not just losing forests, we're losing old growth forests in particular. And that projecting in the future, if we have increased rates of disturbance, we're likely to see a general transition towards younger forests. The other big thing that occurs in this paper is thinking about breaking that out in terms of what are the different types of disturbances out there and how are they likely to shift into the future in terms of both the trend in the, the rate of that disturbance and then also how that affects different demographic processes. This is where things get hard to... To predict quantitatively, we're kind of at the frontier of what our current generation of models can do. The main ones we look at are kind of basic effects of climate, You have the CO2 effect. Uh, you have the climatic effect through temperature and humidity and precipitation. You have potential, and closely related to that, you have effects of droughts. But then you have things like anthropogenic deforestation and other land use transitions and wildfire disturbance, wind disturbance, insect and of forest pests and pathogen disturbance, and then a, a whole smattering of other things that can impact forests in various ways.
2: How do you go about creating a model for this? What kinds of stuff would you think about putting in given how complicated the ecosystem is?
0: Yeah, ecosystems are definitely complicated. And there's always the potential for surprises. And we've learned that through, you know, the past few centuries of, you know, you might call modern environmental management. You want the, the simplest possible representation of something that isn't too simple. Simplicity allows us to understand what's going on in the model, allows us to analyze it and, and really parse out what's going on, but you don't want it to be too simple or else it doesn't actually capture the dynamics. And so yeah, the, kind of the frontier here is increasing the biodiversity in the models, increasing the representation of you know, the size, structure of forests, the species within them, and then, you know, representing how they these forests respond both to these direct physiological impacts, CO2, temperature, humidity, precipitation, you know, the basics of droughts versus these other more complex disturbances, such as wildfire and wind disturbance in, in forest pests and pathogens. I will say also, you know, how we represent those more complex disturbances also e- evolving. So, and it varies a lot. So like deforestation is in pretty much every earth system model because it is simple conceptually. Like if you convert forests to agriculture, you cut all the trees down, and you plant crops. If you convert forests, you know, to 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 urban or suburban areas, you cut down all the trees, you convert it to a, a generally much less vegetated land cover class. And you might have grass and, you know, parks and a few urban trees, but you don't have, you know, the structural complexity of an old growth forest. Other disturbances are harder to represent. Wildfire is in a lot of these models because because fundamentally there's a lot of physics involved in how fire works. You know, how different sizes of woody material from, you know, little fine litter to big logs, you know, how they dry out and then how they burn and what temperatures that generates. Uh, And then biotic disturbances where, you know, living organisms disturb other living organisms such as pests and pathogens, insect outbreaks, bacteria uh, fun is, uh, viruses. That's, that's really the part where we have the least understanding of uh, how these systems work because you have a wide range of diverse biological organisms interacting with another wide range of diverse biological <laughs> organisms. Yeah, th- that, that I think would, is the least, rep- least developed part of, of all of this uh, in terms of our ability to, to really forecast
2: some of the research suggested in terms of wildfires, for example, that controlling the burns could be a way to lessen the damage when fires do take place and could be a method of nutrient recycling and maintaining ecosystem health. But at the same time, I can also see wildfires are a natural process. So is it possible that humans could kind of overcompensate and control it too much? Like how do we logistically go about these sorts of Ecosystem controls to try to maintain the ecosystems
0: The big takeaway from forest fire management in the u.s uh, Over the last hundred and twenty years is one of failure and and hubris when it comes to the idea that we can manage Wildfire, you know around the turn of the previous century a number of large wildfires that kind of led to this policy uh, in the early 1900s of Trying to suppress wildfire, and that was, you know, successful for for many decades. But it was successful in a way that was ultimately self-defeating because every year that you suppress wildfire, the the fuel loads just go up. And then, you know, in the last in the last two decades, you know, kind of I'd say say a real explosion in the U.S. of wildfires that are truly unmanageable. You know, we've seen some huge wildfires moving into these ex-urban areas that are really putting people at harm's way. Even if we set aside, you know, carbon management and biodiversity, just like trying to protect people and their property is getting harder and harder. And so, uh, the question is, how do you, how do you safely reintroduce fire into those systems? And, and it is hard. What a natural fire regime is this, is a changing target because with a changing climate, it, you can't just restore things to what they used to be. Proactively restore them to where they might be able to function, health, degree of health and safety in light of, of the fact that fire risk would have been higher even if we hadn't had this, this legacy of fire suppression and, and kind of forest fire mismanagement.
2: I have heard the idea that with more CO2 in the atmosphere, trees theoretically should thrive since there's more carbon for them to use to grow, but that's not always the case. Since CO2 isn't magic, the trees also need extra water and extra nutrients and if younger trees didn't have these limits on the water and the nutrients and what have you, could they uptake and sequester more carbon? Would it ever be in the same way that older forests did?
0: Starting in the, the 90s, there was a set of experiments called face experiments, free air CO2 enrichment, where they would actually set up these towers in about a 20 to 30 meter circle around a patch of forest and actually inject CO2 into the air, like 200 parts per million above ambient and see how the forest grew. And these were, for logistical reasons, these were all started in younger forests that tended to be more homogenous. And you see a CO2 response. You most definitely see an increase in primary productivity. It averages about 24, 25% across systems. And it can be, there's evidence that it can be limited by uh, nutrient limitation and that the increase in growth rate will cause that nutrient limitation to kind of kick in sooner. But there's also Ah. systems that seem to be able to, you know, stimulate microbes and that can mine the nutrients more efficiently because they have all this extra carbon. And, you know, some of those microbial interactions with CO2 are still ones we haven't fully sorted out. But in terms of the pure physiological responses of young trees, there's the pool part. Old growth forest stores a lot of carbon. Uh, and then there's also the flux part—the rate at which CO2 is taken out of the atmosphere. So these young forests, that are growing very fast, take CO2 out of the atmosphere faster than old-growth forests. Uh, but they just don't store the, the actual stock of carbon there is less. So with old forests, your carbon management strategy is really about like maintaining that storage of carbon there. They don't actually take carbon out of the atmosphere at a particularly high rate. While these young forests do have this capacity to take carbon out of the atmosphere at at high rates, but some of that is carbon that used to be there when those forests were old. (laughs) So ultimately you're better off with older forests, but we can definitely see the the carbon management capacity of these young forests. What's still debated uh, in the community is what is the CO2 response of older forests? And so, you know, young forests are dominated by growth and recruitment processes, old forests kind of you know, old growth is kind of defined in some senses where you hit this balance between growth processes and and mortality processes, so that you're kind of in this dynamic equilibrium where trees are growing, but trees are dying, and you're kind of hit this steady state. As a forest grows up, you start with, you know, a very large number of very small trees, and as they grow up, they they start thinning out, and you get a a smaller number of big trees. And so when you accelerate growth, you actually also accelerate this self-thinning process. And so I think there's a lot of questions that remain about with CO2 in old forests, do you, do you now increase where that steady state point is between growth and mortality? There's actually more storage or are you just cycling faster? You're growing faster, but you're dying faster. and You're staying at the same steady state.
2: Now that you've done this research and worked with all these people and found these results, where do you hope we go from here? How do we get policymakers interested in helping with this?
0: I mean, the kind of the crisis of tropical deforestation is one that the world has recognized for years. And, you know, there's always more that can be done. There are things like uh, incentives within the international climate change treaties. There's this provision called RED, reduced emissions through deforestation and degradation, which incentivizes developing nations in the tropics to preserve these older forests for carbon sequestration and carbon management, you know, it would be great to see even more money put into those, those systems and even greater incentives because, yeah, you know, you're, you're always better off maintaining the, the carbon in those systems than trying to get it back out of the atmosphere. So a lot of the community that I've been involved with over a you know, couple decades worth of my career This IPCC process that generates all these climate projections has had a large focus on this kind of 2100 bullseye, like the climate change projections, you always see projections out to 2100 for this, that, and the other climate projections, you know, how biodiversity responds to climate out to 2100. I've been doing this for 20 years and I've yet to know whether I'm any good at it because I've yet to go to 2100 to see if my model's right. And I will never go to 2100 to see if my model is right. So one of the things that I've been really advocating for uh, more recently within the research community is that, yes, we still need to do these projections out to 2100. There is important international policy being set by that. There's important long-term planning being set by that. Uh, But I think we've we've focused too exclusively on the long-term. And I think there's a lot that can be done by bringing back our focus in forecasting ecological processes closer to the near term. And the, the, the near term has a lot of what I think of as a win-win set of advantages of allowing us to think about processes on the timescales that more of the public and more of the environmental managers actually make decisions on. So most environmental management decisions are made on a seasonal to interannual basis. In some systems like forestry maybe you're planning out on a 20 year 30 year timescale, but even foresters don't really know what to do with a projection to 2100 so we really have been advocating that uh, this idea that, that thinking about prediction and, and projections on the, the shorter timescale is a real win-win for environmental management for climate adaptation, and for fundamentally accelerating our scientific understanding of these processes by explicitly kind of embracing this idea of, of feedback loops and learning loops, and really focusing on accelerating that learning loop. Dr. Dietz, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation.
1: This wraps up episode 23 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. episode was written by Megan Crimmins and Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damieno, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Robert Branning, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweats Penguin Pod,
2: or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.